This is a content warning for sexual assault. Harry Butthole Podcast is produced in partnership with Joy Sauce. Harry Butthole. Welcome to Harry Butthole Podcast. This is a podcast uh, based on the Korean saying, if you laugh while crying, hair will grow out of your butthole. I'm Youngmi Mayer. Every week I have a guest on to tell me a sad story and then we laugh about it in hopes of um, making the guest have a hairy butthole. This <laughs> week I have a very, very amazing guest uh, and a dear friend of mine. They're a comic book writer. <laughs> give give up your ears to Jeremy Holt. Hey, young me. How's it going? Good. How are you? Uh, good. Busy, but busy is good. You're so busy. I feel like you're doing all these. I know I'm not supposed to talk about this project that you're working on now, but it's a very big project. But what, tell us a little bit about your comic book that came out earlier this year. Sure. I had a graphic novel come out called uh, Made in Korea, which is basically an artificial intelligence story that I use to focus on my feelings about being adopted, about identity, and what makes us human. It was. I thought it was amazing. It was like such an interesting um, idea because you sort of like intertwined the ideas of somebody wanting a child that was like specific to their the narrative in their head with AI. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it. I mean, it's set in a world where kids are no longer being born. So this tech race emerges because people want to raise kids. So a company in Korea designs these very realistic, very expensive uh, synthetic kids known as proxies. And a bioengineer at this company uh, cracks the code of the human consciousness, does it on company time. And he decides, instead of losing his greatest creation, this algorithm, he stows it within an abandoned and discounted proxy uh, that gets adopted to Texas. And it's also set in an America where all guns are under lock and key. And I felt that that really sets the stage for this sort of dystopian future. And, you know, what is Texas with no guns? That feels like a dystopian future in a good way. Um, But also, uh, yeah, and it's just a meditation on... My feelings about being a identical triplet Korean adoptee also who is non-binary. That I feel like in itself deserves like an entire episode. So you're a Korean adoptee, you're triplets. And then you were you and your siblings adopted into different families or how did that happen? How did that work? Well, what's interesting is we were separated. Uh, I only mm-hmm. found that out maybe 15 years ago, but we were separated. So my brothers lived together for the first year of their life and I was by myself. So when oh, we wow. got adopted, I was reunited with them. And wow. uh yeah, I didn't it's strange that I didn't know this until relatively recently. But it does say a lot about us. If you were to see photos, my my brothers Chris and Justin do enjoy looking the same, which I find very strange. That is so interesting. So they like they they enjoy this part of their like twin uh, tripletness. That Maybe they enjoy is a, a strong yeah. word. I think that they feel comfortable with it and I've never mm. felt comfortable with it. And I've always sort of marched to the beat of my own drum and I've always tried to do things that they wouldn't do growing up uh, just to sort of right. cr- carve out my own identity. Do you think it would have been different if you had been with them during oh, that 100%. one year? 
hundred percent. I mean, if you talk to children psychologists and I've known a few in my life that I've talked about with this and, uh, they said that, you know, it depends on the train of thought, but there is a very popular train of thought that the first 12 to 15 months of a person's life, it defines the rest of it. And, uh, I feel like my brothers and I are definitely a, a proof of that. I totally believe that. I think after having a kid and just seeing the, it's weird because having it like a newborn feels like nothing is happening, but also everything is happening. Yeah. Um, that's fascinating. As far as like your your identity, like is, is being a mother, Mm -hmm. does that, did that become part of your identity or is that something you really think about? It became a part of my identity. It didn't become the main part of my identity, uh, which I think it does for a lot of women because I think society is rough for a cisgendered, you know, women and they're taught all their lives, especially people socialize as female that they, their value comes from caretaking, right. And their um, proximity to a male person or children. Um, And so, it did part it did become part of my identity but i don't think in in the way that a lot of other women who are maybe more oppressed they take on that role fully and um this is like very i'm i'm really glad you asked me that because i feel like nobody ever asked me stuff like that but it's it's such an important wonderful thing and it's like it is the most important thing and it should be for a lot of people to have children but it i don't know if it's fully it it should be anybody's reason for existing right because we're all individuals and we all deserve like this life outside of this identity that's just in proximity to somebody else right so yeah and and yeah. i think the complexity of being a single parent, I've dated single parents and it is a very different family structure and even experience because I think that we are raised to believe that a family unit is a very specific, it looks a very specific way, right? You have two parents and a child and then people Mm -hmm. naturally will drift apart, get divorced, separated. And that I think is more common than not. And it to me has redefined what is family. Yeah, it it is very, very common. And it's weird because I think even, you know, when I got divorced, I was like, oh, who cares? Like single moms, like every like half the pe- marriages are now end in divorce. No one's going to care that I'm a single mom. But I did feel this like weird shunning from society that took me by surprise. And I think everyone has like this internalized idea that especially for, you know, like women, like cis women, it's like you are like sort of damaged or used in a way that like single or divorced men don't go through and that took me by surprise but I feel like that probably um is something that you probably think about a lot as somebody that's adopted right and I'm I I and you are adopted transracially and so like the structure of families is probably something that's very interesting to you is that yeah I I accurate Recently, I'd say in the past year since moving back to New York City, I was in Vermont for about eight years, mm-hmm. and uh, I've gotten to know a lot of Korean adoptees through this organization called Also Known As, and mm-hmm. initially it was very weird hanging out with a bunch of CADs, as as we're known, 
Um, and it was just strange because it was, I don't have a lot of Asian friends. So to be in a room where I have mm. made the choice to hang out with only Asian, specifically Korean Americans was strange, but you push through that, that wall. It felt like a wall to me. And what I've learned about just sharing these experiences, you know, you hang out with other cats and, and even though we've lived very different lives, we have very, we all have very white sounding names, which is hilarious. Um, <laughs> and a lot of like Eastern European last names. Um, nice. I just, I found out that there's this thing called coming out of the fog in, in being a Korean adoptee where you start to come out of the fog, meaning you you challenge yourself and you realize that the family and the society and the culture you grew up in is not where you were from. It was mm. not where you fr you're from. So for me, that realization opened my eyes to some colorblindness in my own family, some white exceptionalism, some savior complexes. Um, that is not really the fault of my, my adoptive family. It's sort of mm. the byproduct of, of adopting children from another country and, and how complex that is that few families really dig into. Yeah, that's like, I read something a long time ago, and it really struck me profoundly. It said that it was written by, I believe, um, somebody who was adopted. And she was black, and her family was white. And she said that her family was so adamant about the we don't see color. And like, it doesn't matter what race you are. But what ended up happening was as an adult, she had to deal with all the issues of race on her own because the adults in her life refused to admit that they were there. You oh, know? totally. I mean, I was told the same messaging, like we don't see color, which I've unpacked over the years. And, and what I've come to realize is I think the sentiment is we want equality for everybody, but that's not the same thing as we don't see color because the world sees color and growing the up, I viewed, color. Yeah, and I viewed yeah. myself as white up until yeah. I really challenged myself around 2016, 2017, where I was like, my work as a writer, I was writing these white male savior stories. And I was like, mm. why am I doing this? And then for me coming out of that fog was wow. like, this is not me that like, I am Asian. And so when I yeah. would get racism growing up, it was very disorienting because I didn't immediately assume it was directed at me. I'd look over my shoulder and go, Oh wait! Oh, I'm Asian. Like I'd forget. <laughs> You're like, where? Where is? Where is the Ching Chong? <laughs> oh, me? Oh, no. Shit! I'm the Ching Chong. No, my name is Jeremy Holt. <laughs> I mean, like something I That's, read in I uh, Michelle Zano's yeah. book and crying at H Mart. What I loved about her yeah. talking about her name was that her last <laughs> name was sort of a, a shield, in a in a yeah. way. And yeah. for me, it was to me it wasn't a shield. It was actually a burden. Hmm. Because it was like this, conf like, if your name was like Jeremy Park or Jeremy Lee, they'd be like, in their minds, they would expect to see you. But then yes. here you come and then and then you have to, like, explain this other hurdle. Yes. Um. Yeah, th that thing that I read, I, I wish I remembered, but I remember she said, you know, if you as an adult of a different race child don't want to take on the burden of of talking about this it becomes the burden of the kid and that's so fucking unfair because mm -hmm. you are are the adult you're the protector you have to take it on and you have to teach them that that this is all going to happen absolutely and yeah and I, I that really struck me as profound you know you're the adult you're the one that's supposed to take on the confrontations 
and I feel like pretending not to see it because you're too scared to have those confrontations is cowardice and it's gaslighting for your child who was not who did not ask to be placed in the situation it's a disservice to the child for sure it's a disservice for sure so i don't know if this is too personal how was your relationship with your family though with your adoptive family um really great up until i started to see behind that sort of curtain and and question um my own identity in a myriad of ways um not just culturally and what I see in the mirror, but just my gender identity. And really mm-hmm. the gender identity component has been the, the hardest thing to discuss with my family because um, there's a, a real resistance to support me. Oh, really? Yeah. That's tough. I mean, I think anyone listening to this that, you know, is a adoptee, like a transracial adoptee or someone that is, you know, trans or non-binary, um, those two things are so difficult to deal with in your family on their own. But together, I imagine that that's like colossal. Yeah, it's just, you know, I, so I, I came out as non-binary in 2017. And I look back and I realized it was a very, what I, I view as a sort of baby queer moment where I just assumed you tell your family. Like, my family loves me, I can mm. tell them. The reality is you really need to consider if the people you want to tell who are close to you can support it. Because if you know they can't, or if you know if that's a question mark, mm. y- you're not, mm-hmm. it, it's not going to serve you in the end because then y- you end up having to take on that emotional load of having to explain everything to them because they oftentimes will not do that research or will not hold space to hear something that they don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I really like, you know, I really like how you, um, worded that because I feel like people always view coming out to your family as a good thing, or even if it's, they react badly, like you should do it, like live your truth or whatever. But, but, um, I like how you framed it as, you know, you knowing know, knowing that this knowing might, that this might be something just that causes be something more that harm. causes more harm. Yeah, I, I, I sort of, I got that it. clarity when I was listening, or I read this interview somewhere where the teenagers who who are queer or gay or wherever they fall in the LGBTQ spectrum have often mm-hmm. asked, like, I do I come out to my parents? And the resounding advice I've I've heard from professionals is, if it puts your safety at risk, it is not mm-hmm. worth it. Mm-hmm. Like, wait until you're not living under the, right. the roof right. of, of your parents or you have some independence, both, you know, whether it's in a different home or financially, um, which is it's true because I view family as the only socially acceptable abuse. We're all just like, but it's family. It's like, I don't want to go home for Thanksgiving because yeah. it's yeah. really emotionally toxic, but it's family. And rarely are there other instances where we just make that that exception. Yeah. I, you know, what's so interesting, like, because I grew up like, you know, I'm biracial, I grew up with Korean family. And the interesting thing is, in Korea, in the society, they already have that sort of built in, like Koreans, like, all Koreans know this of any age. It's like, there are just things that you just don't tell your family, because you want your family in your life. Mm. And we're gonna. And so in Korea, it's totally acceptable for somebody my age to be in a full-blown relationship and never tell their family. And it's not even if it's like 
homosexual or outside or whatever, we just don't tell them stuff because we don't want them to use that to harm us. And um, so many people of my own age and when I was younger, all my Korean friends, they wouldn't say anything to their parents. You know, they'd just come home and be like, yeah, I'm going to college and I have a job and that's it. Like they wouldn't tell them the details of their life. I, I like that because it sounds like the Korean culture is sort of taught from an early age about a boundary, setting a boundary. I don't know if that's how you viewed it growing up, but that's what it, what I'm hearing. I'm like, it sounds like a boundary because now I'm, I'm withholding information from certain people yeah. my, that are close to me because in my family, because I know it just will turn into an argument. Yes. But I think in Korean culture, it's like pretty extreme. It's like, <laughs> it's, it's because Korean culture, there are no boundaries between parents and children. It's uh, very codependent. Sure. And so it, what becomes, what becomes natural is like children from an early age learn to just lie about everything or withhold all this information and you just don't tell your family. Um, but yeah, like, I guess you can see it as like this boundary setting mechanism, but sometimes I'm just like, damn, you, we're straight up just lying to our grandma. <laughs> I, I'm a fucking lesbian. Like she thinks I'm getting married. <laughs> She's like, where, why are, why don't you have any kids? Oh my God, grandma. You do not want to know why. Yeah, um, it might kill you. But yeah, but yeah, that's like such a big part of Korean culture. I feel like. Anyway, um, so, you know, obviously I have a guest on to tell a sad story and I want to like, I guess I always like to start with a sad story just to warm up the guest. Um, and you, you obviously saw this on my Instagram, but I have another podcast called Feeling Asian and that we just announced that we're going to end that podcast in a month. So sad. It's been, so sad. <laughs> oh no. I think, is that like how I feel like we met through the internet, but I'm guessing that maybe that was how you found yeah i mean feeling asian was my lifeline at the beginning of the pandemic and um i was just talking about this with my friend jess we're both huge fans of the podcast and we were just sort of commiserating about the the ending of it can i so i guess my question is like did you set out to look for more asian content because i i I remember you said you didn't have any asian friends and you felt detached from your identity i'm guessing yeah it was really on the it was at the beginning of this inward journey of just leaning into the asianness of my identity Mm -hmm. that i ignored i i have ignored for the most of my life i've just not thought of it as important i've almost pretended it didn't exist um yeah, I mean, I I feel like being adopted and being around, you know, I lived overseas half my life, so I was around different cultures, but mm-hmm. all my friend groups were predominantly white, and I never felt like an outsider, which is sort of strange now looking back, because I absolutely was the outsider. Um, so I didn't know where to turn, and I was living in Vermont at the time, and it was very lonely. I had gotten out of this really toxic relationship, and I was living alone for the first time in my life, and, and I just started looking on the internet. I feel like there are a lot of people that would have noticed from the listenership is that they are Asian people that are living in these spaces that are like all white, like little towns, like they'll be the only Asian person in a rural area. And I feel like those are some of our like like strongest fans because they do feel like sort of alone in, in the way that you were discussing. Why did you, can I ask like what, what led you on this journey of being like, I have to get in touch with my Asian identity? Like how did that start? 
It stemmed from my creative work. I wasn't really finding a lot of success. Uh, trying to get stuff published was growing more and more difficult. Um, I also was managed by a, a literary agent. My first lit agent was sort of terrible in a lot of ways. And so I started looking at all of my work that I'd written, all the work I was developing, and all the stuff I wanted to write. And I realized if I could infuse some color, literally and figuratively, into my stories, what would that look like? So I took a story that I had written, a romantic comedy that featured two white people, and I was like, I'm going to make them people of color, see what happens. And the story almost instantly was more interesting because there were social conflicts I could explore. There was uh, different viewpoints I could explore. And I thought, this is what I need to do. And it, it sort of emboldened me to weave my own personal narratives and trauma into my stories and then I started getting published a lot easier because the things editors were looking at that I was submitting, they were like, oh, this is so mm-hmm. real. It's like this character's conflict is so relatable. And it mm-hmm. happened to be the the one thing I wrote into it that was pulled from my own life. So yeah. moving forward, I was like, I, representation is everything to me. All my stories have to have proper representation, whether it's from a gender component or a race component. And yeah. then I wanted to immerse myself in, in feeling Asian sort of found its way into the content I was um, consuming. So it was sort of like this endeavor to like find yourself as a creative voice to like really dig into who you are as a person. Yes. I was doing that in therapy for years and I just never thought to apply any of it. And when Mm. people ask me like, where do you get your ideas? I say therapy. Therapy creates this well that never runs dry. (laughs) Me too. Well, you know what I think is very interesting about that? I think a lot of adoptees have this feeling I don't know if this is true for you, but I, from what I've seen, a lot of adoptees that are transracial have this feeling that they do not have the right to their heritage or their identity because they did not grow up around it. And I, I feel like sometimes it stops people from being like, you know, like as a writer, you're writing stories about white people because you're like, well, I can't write about Korean people because like, I don't feel like I know what that is or I own that or have the right to it. But the, but the truth is just living as an Asian presenting person, you absolutely do. Do you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. like your experiences are absolutely that. Did you ever feel that way? Like, oh, I don't want to write about Korean stuff because like, I don't really know or. Not so much not. that way. It was more of just, I just, I thought I was white. Like when I touched right, my right, reflection right. in a mirror as a yeah. child, mm-hmm. it was like, it's the, the way I describe it is like, when you see a celebrity, like you recognize the celebrity, but you don't know them. And that's mm. what my, my reflection as like in third grade, I catch my reflection is like, I know that person, but I don't know them. Like I recognize them, but I don't know them because in my mind I'm white. Oof. So it was yeah. very, very disorienting. That sounds really traumatizing. I mean, adoption that, is traumatizing. Yeah. It's trauma. Like whether I think yeah. that's become more openly discussed uh, in the last, I'd say, you know, several years that it's been Mm. being viewed and embraced as a traumatic event. I can't imagine, you know, I have, I think there's so many uh, levels of people that have this identity crisis, you know, people that are first generation or children of immigrants that grew up in a different culture than their parents. And even just like Korean Americans who live in America who, who aren't adoptees. Like, I feel like we all share the similar sort of confusion and i think what you just said where you can't you you couldn't recognize your reflection i feel like 
a lot of people feel that, you know, because it's like you're living in the society where you feel very much like everyone else and they don't look like you. Yeah. What, what did I want to say? I wanted to say you're talking that... about feeling Asian? You were going to talk about your feelings about... Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm sad, but I'm also happy. I feel like, you know, it's just like... It's sad when anything ends and it's making me really sad that um, I like I, I have this feeling that I let a bunch of people down because I know that they're fans of it. But also I feel like I have to be true to myself. And as somebody that has built like a career of out of being authentic to myself, it's like I have to keep doing that Yeah, because that's like the only thing I have. You know, I'm not like. I'm not like a model or an actor where I can just pretend to be this other thing. And that's what I'm selling. I'm actually selling my content and my life. And so I have to make sure that whatever I'm putting out is like authentic and not that feeling Asian wasn't because it was 100%, you know, exactly what I want to talk about. But it's like, there's a big part of me that feels like it's time for me to move on. So it's right. good. It's good to lean into that. And, and it, the most important, one of the most important lessons I learned in therapy is that we as individuals are not responsible for other people's feelings. <laughs> as much as I don't, <laughs> I as, say, I'm going to say that it's so hard to, yeah. for me to implement that in my own life, but I have to remind myself and the, and the, the sort of the life hack for me is if I'm open, honest, and I communicate that I'm off the hook about how someone feels about what I say to them. Um, but it's a, it's a ongoing learning curve for me, for sure. I have been processing that in therapy as well. And then now I'm to the point where I'm like, now I feel like the second step for me is I have the right to emotions, even if they're irrational and I can express them and maybe I am being a dumb bitch, but you know what? <laughs> I can because I'm I'm just human and humans have irrational emotions. Sometimes I'm a dumb bitch. And yeah, I like maybe I shouldn't have said that. But I was feeling angry and I apologize. But that's fine because that everyone does that. Mm -hmm. It's human. It's fine. So did, do you have a sad story to share? I do have a sad story. Um, I, I mentioned that I, I came out in 2017 to my family and it was not well received. So around Christmas time... Um, my family decided to hold an intervention for me to discuss it. And so it was a very aggressive approach. Um, at the time, I wasn't really sure what I was walking into, but I did try to prime my family to, by saying, I need you to understand that this is a journey for me. I don't have all the answers, but I am open to your questions, but I may not be able to answer all your questions. Even that, looking back, was being very generous emotionally because it's yeah. like I'm taking it all on. And it was it was met with some really absurd responses. I mean, my my mom's first question was, "Why can't you just be gay?" And I said, "Mom, it's not what we're talking about. We're talking about gender identity." And now I get that people conflate sexuality and gender; they're mm -hmm. two different mm -hmm. things. But what was mm -hmm. really confusing to me about that question is that my my youngest sister has been out and proud her entire adult life, and my mom right. has had a hard time accepting that. It's so. I didn't understand why right. she said that because it was like, what, are you giving me some sort of out or something? Like, I don't really understand the question. Um, and then I had a brother who <laughs> he's, he's, he's like, bro, I've been researching this. I'm like, cool. What do you got? And he said, if you want to be a woman, just be a woman. And I was like, oh, God, Whoa, that's not what we're talking about. And then he said, millennials are the ones who invented the term non-binary. I said, 
that's patently untrue. I, I don't know what website true. you were going to. Um, so yeah. it was really just unfortunate. Um, what's not surprising is that my the, the siblings in my family, I have five siblings, two of which are, are um, cis women, uh, they are the most supportive emotionally. I don't have to explain anything to them. They don't make it about themselves, which is remarkable because looking back, definitely my family, I was raised in this sort of, if it's not about me, why does it matter? Um, yeah. So this all sort of sets the stage for my sad story, which um, this involves a very close male friend who my relationship with this friend has changed dramatically um, as of two years ago uh, when I was spending time with them. Uh, it was around uh, the holidays and I, it was my birthday's on the, on the 28th of December. So it was mm. also around my birthday. And so this friend says, um, explain to me this whole non-binary thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I explain it and it feels really weird. It feels like this strange interview. And then after yeah. I say what I have to say, he says, well, it sounds like you've put a lot of thought into this so I can support it. Like that's mm. weird. Okay. And then on my birthday, uh, we're looking for a place to eat. And apropos of nothing, he turns to me and he says, explain to me why you think you have trauma. And I was so caught oh. off guard by it. And I said, I don't understand. What do, you, what do you mean why I think I have trauma? He says, well, you know, I've read your interviews and all the stuff you talk about with your work. And I have been very open about uh, sexual assault that I experienced when I was 22. Mm-hmm. And it was a thing that I never really addressed for a good decade or more. Mm-hmm. And it really explains a, a lot about the relationships I, I ended up in. Um, because mm. my trauma response was to just minimize myself to the point where I didn't exist and I just was going to be agreeable. And it didn't serve mm-hmm. me because I ended up in a few relationships with like textbook narcissists. So I even honestly married one. So, um, right. so I was caught off guard and what was so remarkable was I had been doing therapy, intense therapy, EMDR therapy for, mm-hmm. for years. And in about five minutes, this person completely destroyed all of it because yeah. in that moment, yeah, all- I, I could feel myself getting activated. I could feel myself having a, the onset of a panic attack. And then this person says, um, you don't have trauma. You talk about that mm. sexual assault. That w- is not trauma. And what? I was like, how is that not trauma? He said, that's regret. And I said, what are you talking about? Yikes. And he said, you have general anxiety. That's what you have. And you need to stop telling people you have PTSD because you don't. And I said, what? And then he said, look, in my late 20s, I was raped. And I was like, what? Wow. And he said, it's not a big deal. I said, that is a very big deal. I'm so sorry that happened to you. And he said, no, no, it's regret. And you regret it too. Mm. And I disassociated in that moment and mm-hmm. I found myself saying, you're right. You're right about all of it. I don't have PTSD. That was not traumatic. And I have general anxiety. And it was, it completely wow. changed our relationship. And I don't feel safe talking about stuff anymore, which is, <laughs> which is hard because this is like one of my closest friends. And it's just sad because that conversation that he forced upon me wasn't even about me. It was about him. And I couldn't provide the support because I was, 
I, I just completely snapped in this disassociative state and I was just watching it happen. And so my therapist told me to write a letter mm -hmm. to this person, which I did, and I have not sent it. Um, and I talked to them mm. far less than I, I, I have, and I'm just not, I'm just not ready. I, I just don't have the bandwidth to take on that emotional load. Uh, and, it, and it's just hard because this person has, has kids. And the thing I wanted to say, which I didn't think in the time was, would you be telling this to your kids if, if they were right? Would you Probably. be saying it's regret? Like, no. So, so what is the difference? It's because... <sighs> You don't accept that I'm non-binary. You don't accept me anything other than your cis male brother. And mm -hmm. men can't get hurt in that way. That's the narrative. Men can't get hurt in mm -hmm. that way. Like, it's not violence. There was no bloodshed. Mm -hmm. You weren't. You didn't go to the hospital. So it's not trauma. And it's just shocking to me. And it's sad that so many straight men I know don't have the tools to be able to talk about these feelings. And it's, it's just, it's disappointing. It's very interesting hearing you tell that story because I feel like you have such an emotional intelligence and you already know what's going exactly what's going on. Like you were saying, yeah, it wasn't even about me. It was like about him and his trauma and the fact that when that happened to him, the way that he processed it was thinking that it didn't happen, that it was consensual and that he regretted it afterward because it was it's too painful to admit that you're the victim right and it's it's hard um, for for men to to and there's plenty yes. of men that get sexually assaulted and there yep. is no real structure societally for these men to talk about it and it's it's it to me it's yeah. it's a bigger uh systemic issue where because men are not encouraged to emote with other men it's mm -hmm. why we see active shooters it's it's why we see yep. suicide it the the false narrative is that these men that go on to commit crimes whether it's against other people like a mass shooting or against themselves with suicide mm -hmm. the, this prevailing narrative that they were isolated from other women that they mm -hmm. didn't couldn't get a date and it's like mm -hmm. no they were isolated from other men if men were, were mm -hmm. encouraged to emote at an early age just like women are yeah. i think this would be very different i i think we'd see less um, violence in this way, but um, I don't know if that's ever going to change anytime soon. This idea that men can't be victims even when they're victims and all they need to do is be like, I was victimized, that was painful, and I have to process it. But yeah, there is a societal narrative that if you are a man that was victimized, it's like your fault because you were too weak. So that's too painful for them to take on. So they have to change the narrative to be like, Oh, no, no. I wanted to do that. It's just that afterward I regretted it or something. Yeah, that or just walk it off. Walk it off. Yeah. And, you know, but the, the I, problem in, yeah. in this this situation is that the the person who loses in a relationship is, is often the woman. Because, mm -hmm. you know, women who date straight men or marry straight men become everything to this to, to their partner. They become their therapist, their lover, their friend. Mm -hmm. um, because men yeah. just don't know how to find other support anywhere else um and it's the women that lose in the end because they, they have to carry this huge burden you know i i'm so fascinated by like 
like cishet men who have this sort of mindset because there's this like mentality that you can never be the victim because that that's showing weakness when the opposite is true like admitting that you're victimized is like it takes so much strength um but then they also take on this thing of and this is like what happened to you not only will they not allow themselves to be a victim but they see other people claiming victimhood and then they get fucking resentful because they're like how fucking dare you think you are allowed to be a victim when i can't be a victim no you're not a victim either none of you are victims you're all just fucking pussies and you need to fucking man up you know what i mean yeah and that like i remember this is gonna sound silly but i feel like this is right in the vein like there was like years ago like probably almost 10 years ago now there was like this viral video of this man that started to cry because he saw like a star wars advertisement when star wars came back Mm -hmm. and all these men like jumped on him and they were like what the fuck is wrong with this fucking pussy ass bitch like why is he crying because he likes star wars so much and it's like what sort of pathological mental state are you in that watching somebody enjoy something is making you enraged do you know what i mean yeah and it's because men like okay like now you know i have a son and i see how men treat their sons and it's like you see a little boy becoming giddy even giddiness not even like whatever crying or whatever giddiness like oh it's a birthday cake and they start clapping and they get giddy and their dads will be like stop that don't be a little fucking bitch or whatever yeah because their dads weren't allowed to express happiness you know any emotion except anger and so this little kid is getting bullied by his dad being taught that hap like a, a sign of happiness is quote unquote gay or feminine right. and um and then you know that kid becomes an adult and then he sees somebody crying over Star Wars and he's like, fuck you, you fucking, you know, like. It's a, it's it's like, a true pandemic. I mean, the, the way if, if kids were allowed, if parents could hold space for kids to be whoever they want to be and to yeah. not adhere to the, these heteronormative standards or these societal standards. Yeah. We'd be better off as a society, but that can gets kicked down the road and you you get traumatized. Yes. So you traumatize your kids and those kids will traumatize their kids. And, it, and it, it's never really truly addressed. Um, I think the younger Ever. generations I have hope are much more open to it um, as yeah. far as like accepting people for how they how they walk this this earth. The thing is that like if if you find yourself watching somebody having emotions and that's making you angry, that's a there's something wrong there. And Absolutely. you should address that. You're that has nothing to do with that other person. Yep. And if you're feeling like, oh, why does that person get to emote and I can't? That means that you aren't allowing yourself to emote that's all Mm -hmm. that is Mm -hmm. you know but i want to just address that that incident you know like in that moment like how you're discussing it is that you're being very empathetic empathetic to your friend and being like oh this is about you but but still that caused you like immense harm that was traumatizing for you and it was like this person that couldn't like that didn't know themselves enough and didn't process their emotions enough to the point where they were harming you and trying to like um, gaslight you into to thinking that your reality is not real. Yeah, it's, it was gaslighting. It was just assuaging their own internal Ugh. conflicts, whatever those may be. And to yeah. talk with such authority was just shocking to me. And and I, yeah. I'm not even sure they're 
they're aware of the full extent of the damage, which is, I mean, they're aware that I don't talk to them nearly as much. And I, I keep our conversations to very specific topics. And of yeah. course they've never brought it up to me. Um, and even then send the letter, send the <laughs> letter is what my, <laughs> I love, I love chaos. Send it. I love send chaos it. and drama. Yeah, I, sh- I should. I mean, it, but... it, it's just like, you know, the, and the whole gender thing, it, it, it's, you know, they yeah. haven't been able to, or he hasn't been able to really um, embrace it fully. And one of my triplet brothers has definitely come around. Um, he was definitely the one who, who was really not, not sure of how to show support, but um, it's just about not, it's about checking your ego and not making it about you. So a prime example of this yeah. is like when I changed my pronouns in 20... I don't know, 2019, 2020, mm-hmm. um, I decided to learn from my mistake and tell only the people I know who could support it, which went great generally. Uh, Good. One mm-hmm. of them was one of my triplet brothers who I, I thought could support it. And, and he asked me, he said, what does this mean? I said, what do you think this means? And he says, you're using they, them, not he, him. I said, yeah. And he said, cool, that doesn't really affect me. I don't use pronouns anyway. And, it, and I was... Yeah, you do. I was taken <laughs> aback. I was like, that's the... How did, first of all, how did he make it about him in less than two seconds and ha- then mm-hmm. followed up with, with su- such a dumb statement? Like, we all use pronouns, mm-hmm. dude. Like, what are you talking yeah. about? As opposed to my older sister, who really, in my eyes, has no real reason to understand any of this gender identity stuff. And when I told her, she said, on behalf of my family, we're so happy for you. We're excited for you. And I can't wait to talk to you about it. Oh, that's so sweet. And it's like, this is the difference when you let women emote with other women they build mm-hmm. that emotional intelligence and when you isolate men from other men they have none and it's just it's yeah sad. it's truly sad and it's getting out of hand i think like i i'm sure you saw that thing on twitter where it said like in the last 10 years the number of like cishet men who have never had sex like tripled and then they try to make it women's fault. They're mm-hmm. like these sluts or blah, blah. And it's like, Incel mentality. I don't know, man. I don't know if it's the women's fault. Like, it's definitely not. I mean, it. Come on. And yeah, it's, exactly. I get it. It takes a lot to look inward, to gain some perspective, to spend time with yourself doing some introspection, yeah. some self-reflection. It's hard. It's work. Like that's what therapy is. It's work. You, we're, when you go to therapy, you are confronting stuff you do not want to look at. These are things mm-hmm. in boxes on shelves that you do not want to open and mm-hmm. you are forcing yourself to. And for me, two of my grandparents my, on my mom's side, both passed last year within months of each other. And mm. what I learned in that experience was I, historically speaking, have run from conflict. I've spent my entire conscious life avoiding embarrassment. As far back as yeah. I can remember, I'd avoid anything that might embarrass me. And mm. I would avoid conflict. So when they when they passed, I, I was rethinking what conflict means. And to me, conflict is like a gift. I look at it as a gift. I look at my trauma as a gift. I look at, at as conflict as a gift that you unwrap and unpack. Mm-hmm. And that unpacking and unwrapping is the human experience. And when you're dead, you don't get that experience again. So why would I just not unpack these things? Because what's happening, what was happening to me is that I keep putting these boxes I don't want to open 
in these shelves in my mind and then my mind is completely cluttered and I can't leave the room. And it's like, I got to open it, look and say, Hey, this doesn't serve me. Toss it out, open the next one. But that experience of just confronting the conflict is actually a learning experience and you can know yourself a lot better. It's a bonding experience. It's, it's, and it's like, it is like learning about yourself and also connecting you with other people. Well, I'm really sorry that that happened to you with your friend well, I'm I'm happy that your sister responded in the way that she did, and you found that. But how, when are when are these like cishet men gonna learn the definition of the word pronoun? Is it, can we just ask them to? If you're <laughs> if you have a man in your life, ask them to go look up the word that pronoun in the dictionary. Because I'm so tired of the I don't use pronouns. Like, yeah, if you're gonna like try to own us at least learn the definition of a word that we all learned in the third grade. Do you right. know what I mean? Right. And I, I just, I don't know. Uh, sometimes I have the, the bandwidth to challenge um, my straight male friends when, when they get out of line with, with a way of thinking about something, or I just point yeah. it out like, Hey, this is, you hear that's kind of problematic. Like I was in a relationship where um, it was physically abusive and, and, uh, I remember telling a friend, like, you know, I, I fell asleep once and, and she hit me in the face. And his immediate response was, well, how, how hard can a woman hit? And then I said, let me ask you this. So what if I did toxic. it? What if I did it yeah. to my partner? Would we be hanging out right now? And then it was like a yeah. light bulb moment. He said, oh, I said, it's not about how hard one can hit. It's about consent. No. That's it. And I'm glad that you said that because I feel like all these like toxic men are they they think feminism is women saying that we're better than men or whatever or hating men. It's not that it's like, you know, when we talk shit about the patriarchy, we're we're talking about the, the system that harms actively harms cishet men actively. Yes. To, to the point where if if I as a woman hit a cishet ma- man that I was in a relationship with, he could not go to the fucking police or he would feel like he could not go to the hospital even. And that is, that is the patriarchy. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. And the work of feminism would have helped your friend in that moment where he was like, no, you weren't sexually assaulted because I wasn't either, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's just a, a, (sighs) a low emotional intelligence. And I feel, I feel bad for my female friends who go on dates continue to go on dates with straight men because they are also straight cis women. Uh, yeah. And just like the, the lack of emotional intelligence is just really shocking and sad. It is. It's shocking and sad. And like so many behaviors from, I think, cishet men are just full blown blatant red flags that should, I mean, statistically it is happening that should make women immediately stop seeing them. And here yeah. we are. In a decade, three times as many of them can't have sex. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I'm like I'm 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 not trying to kick them while they're down, but and here's the I'm thing: I'm not, I don't I don't yeah. think straight dudes are bad. I don't. I'm not saying no, all straight men either. are bad. I think they're victims. They're victims. That's exactly they're it. victims. All. They're yeah. victims. But they can't even say they're victims. They're like, no, no, no. They're gaslighting no themselves. A victim. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I said yes. Like it's 2014. <laughs> yes, it's. Let's go watch Broad City. Yes, sorry. Um, I apologize to the listeners that I said yes. That's the one thing I feel bad about. 
Well, that was like such a great conversation, Jeremy. I really respect your perspective. You're extremely emotionally intelligent. That was like, and I, I'm just going to say, send the, send the email. Do you know what I do? Do you know what I do? I, I send the email and then I block them on everything. <laughs> I send it and then I block. I'm like, I don't want the response. I just want you to hear me and then blocked forever. I've done that a bunch and it's, 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 it's great. My therapist says you leave it where it belongs and then you move on. Oh, I like that. Leave the emotion where it, you know, and then you don't dwell on it. I feel like I definitely am holding on to it. Literally. Yeah. I always say it now. Now I'm, I'm at an age where I don't hold on to anything, any sort of relationship, like friend or like romantic relationship, whatever I was feeling, I say everything and then I block, then I block on everything, you know? So Anyway, that was such a great conversation. Where can our listeners uh, find you on social media? Jeremy Holt Books, Twitter, Instagram, and my website is jeremyholtbooks.com. And uh, I really was telling myself, don't cry on this podcast, but I'm kind of proud that I did because it's the whole point (laughs) to just emote. Yeah. No, that was great. You cried and you laughed. You gave yourself a hairy butthole. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Thank you so much for crying and laughing. Um, Thank you for having me. And yeah, of course. Um, you can follow this podcast at Harry Butthole Podcast on Instagram. Um, episodes are all on Joy Sauce, the website. You can follow me at YM Mayor or Young Me Mayor on TikTok. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye.